We have two passages today, one from Romans, one from 2 Corinthians. From Romans. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And from 2 Corinthians. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Good morning, everybody. Good to be with y'all. So if you've uh, attended here very long, you know it's sort of my custom in terms of my sermon topics to, um, you know, even though we have an annual theme that we generally follow and things like that and different topics will come up in the needs of our church. Another thing we do is when, when the wider society of our nation is focused on something, we often will uh, take uh, some time to talk about th that too. And that's not in, uh, in, in the interest of being, uh, you know, putting our finger in the air and being trendy or something like that. It's in the interest of bringing the Bible to bear on real things. Um, the Bible isn't something we just go in a cave and study for ourselves. It's supposed to, you know, the gospel's taken out. Jesus, uh, in Matthew, the last thing he does is commission people to go out into the world, into the nations, and take his word. And so if we're not going to engage from a biblical perspective the things going on in our society and our culture, it's sort of like we're putting our light under a bushel. So to that end, um, we're going to turn our attention today to Advent, to Advent. Uh, Corey mentioned uh, an Advent devotional. You may see Advent calendars and all sorts of things. It's really kind of commercialized to, uh, to a fault. Um, I didn't grow up in a faith tradition that, you know, followed the liturgical calendar. And some of you probably did. You'll know more about this maybe uh, than, than I was familiar with. But, and there are all sorts of traditions surrounding this, this concept of Advent, which is this time of year in a liturgical uh, calendar. Um, many of those traditions don't have much biblical basis at all. They're just traditions that developed over time. Um, but the basic concept of Advent is exceedingly biblical. And before you say, uh, well, that's not a Bible word, au contraire, it's all over the place in the Bible. You just don't speak Latin. You've seen the word coming or arrival or presence about a billion times in the Bible, often speaking of the coming of the Lord. Isaiah 40 is all about that. Wait on the Lord. He is coming. He promised he, he, He's going to come, and he, he is going to come. So the Greek and Hebrew of our Bibles, New Testament and Old Testament respectively, um, say this all the time. They just use Greek and Hebrew instead of Latin. And we use the word, um, you know, Advent today because it's an anglicized form of that. And again, it means simply coming or arrival used by the early, earliest Christians in the first few centuries after Christ, uh, you know, by the, by the tens of hundreds of thousands in Europe, in western part of the Mediterranean. Anybody who used Latin uh, would have used this word when they, when they read uh, in their Bibles. Um, now, while the Lord did come once at the incarnation of Jesus, every Christian who lives after that, including ourselves, of course, we await His second arrival, His second coming, at the end of time. And a visual image that the Bible uses several times 
to convey this arrival of God to rescue or save his people is that of light. Light, the light of God is going to invade the darkness of the world, the darkness of despair. God's light will break into that and change everything. And we see this image in the writings of Paul, in Paul's letter to the Romans to be specific. He says in Romans uh, 13, 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. What does that sound like? Night is receding, the day is, is here, it's, it's breaking. What do we call that? Dawn. Several people said dawn. This is a picture, an image, a mental picture of dawn. That initial moment when light begins to pierce the deep darkness of night. And so as we turn our attention this morning to this topic that many are thinking about in our society and all over the world, in fact, we're going to use this image of dawn um, to, to help us grasp how the coming of the Lord should shape our lives. Now, I want you to notice something else here. Paul isn't, he doesn't just present the fact of, of dawn's arrival as kind of, you know, abstract academic information. Some theology you need to memorize. He's, he doesn't say that. He says, uh, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So, so what? Well, then wake up from sleep. Don't just keep sleeping. Daytime's here. Cast off the works associated with darkness and put on the armor or the weapons, your version may say, of light. So this has practical daily upshot. There's takeaways that Paul wants us to get from this in terms of how we think, and in terms of how we act. And so we're going to use this idea of dawn in this next uh, series of lessons, which will, like series two, today and next week, Lord willing. And we're going to talk about being a people of the dawn. A people of the dawn. Waiting in the in-between. And that hopefully will, that, that subtitle will become clear as we move on. All right. So what we're going to try to do this morning and next week is, is examine what this means. First, we're going to try to portray the real world that we all live in, the world we occupy day in, day out, the world post-Calvary, after Jesus died on the cross. What is, how are we to think about that world? So we're going to take a stab at, at giving a basic orientation toward that world, a framework mentally to, to think about what we should expect as we live in this world. And then secondly, next week, we're going to address how this should shape the way we live. All right? So it's kind of how we think and how we live uh, as we talk about being a people of the dawn. Now, if we're going to accurately characterize the world we live in, then, we've got to first of all acknowledge that it is a, a really dark place. And, you know, some of us, I can't, I think more attracted to this, we're more comfortable with this. Uh, we, we would use words like, that's realistic. You're not being naive and syrupy sweet. You're willing to face the hard. Others of us have different temperaments, and we run like we're running from the plague of anything that sort of hints at uncomfortable, right? So you're going to have to bear with me if you're in the latter camp here, um, because we do need to face the music, which is the darkness of our world. I'm going to run through a few examples. I'm sure we could all multiply many more ourselves from our own experiences. Think about your work. What is more frustrating upon occasion than work, right? I, of course, refer to my job pre-preaching at this church, of course. <laughs> Think about your work. Work can be really enjoyable. Many of us, in fact, fall in love with our work. We get our whole identity from our career. The Bible would call that idolatry, I'm sure. But there's a reason it is such a 
a, a, you know, good stand-in for God, the reason it functions well as an idol for a while until it doesn't, is that God made us to work. Work was, vocation was given to us as part of our, our being in the garden before the fall. But of course the fall does happen. Sin does enter the world, it does enter the garden, and we live in the wake of that. And then thorns and thistles accompany our work. We, we earn our bread by the sweat of our face. And it can be incredibly frustrating. There's a reason we dread Mondays, you know, at least in our part of the world, because there's stuff at work I don't want to face. Ecclesiastes sums this up well when it says in, in chapter 2, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Not a vocation, it's a vexation here. Even in the night his heart does not rest. You ever had a day like that? The, the day doesn't end, it just goes on into the night, and you really you wake up and your brain won't shut up because there's too many things? The, the, the writer here is, is, is just... Um, fixated on the vanity of all that and, and it's really kind of the theme of the book of ecclesiastes that's a very realistic picture of the darkness of this world right it's interesting to me that in the bible you got proverbs and ecclesiastes right together because proverbs is all like if you do this this will happen if you do this this will happen it's like chamber of commerce literature almost <laughs> everything works you know just do the rules it's all rational and then right after that you get ecclesiastes that says basically it doesn't matter what you do it's not going to work right you grasp and win. And man, if the Bible ever rung true, it's because, it's because of stuff like that. It has both in there. You know, it, it just, it realizes that it's not um, either case completely. But we do know the frustrations of work. And there are many other things as well. I think about just the persistence of, of injustice, of things like racism and other kinds of hatred. Uh, you know, God, may, this is why we should care about racism. When somebody dehumanizes another person, a little bit or a lot, it doesn't matter how they do it and how sophisticated they are about it, when they do that, what they are doing is taking a human being made in the image of God and saying, I'm going to turn you into something less than that. I'm going to regard you as something less than that. I don't care about whoever's political agenda. Racism has always been wrong. God has never been a respecter of persons, not once in the Bible. And he has never been a person who, uh, in Christ, calls us to respect things like barbarian, Scythian, you know, black, white, slave-free, rich, poor, more than our identity in Christ. And it's, it's, it's a black mark on the history of Christianity. Not Christianity itself, but the way Christians have practiced it. That oftentimes the church has been very complicit in stuff like that. The last place, the last holdout. And I find this very frustrating. It seems like we make two steps forward and then a step back. You know, after the Civil War and slavery ended, we had 100 years. It took 100 years of Jim Crow before we got a Civil Rights Act that said you can vote, even though constitutionally it was legal the whole time. But it was opposed all over the place, especially in the South. And then you think, okay, we're, we're, that's over. You know, Ku Klux Klan marches and all that kind of stuff, that's just ridiculous stuff from times past. And then a few years ago, we get the Charlottesville thing, right? People shouting Nazi, literally, Nazi chants as they march uh, down the streets of Charlottesville. What about sickness and death? Daniel's been dealing with COVID for, about, I don't know, a decade, he feels, I'm sure. But what's the next pandemic, you know? There's going to be another one. There's going to be something else. And even without pandemics, 
we all feel the effects as we get older of aging and how our bodies don't work like they used to and we have worries about ourselves or our loved ones. It reminds me of Job 14.1 where Job says, Man who is born of woman is of few days and full of sorrow. You know, not the most light-filled statement ever. It's kind of a dark look at things. What about violence and war? You know, World War I, the Great War, as it was called before that we knew it would be a World War II, 1914 through 1917 or so, was supposed to be the war that ended all wars. Ha. Huh. It actually set up the Second World War. Historians see them as sort of all of a piece. The, the, the conditions at the end of World War I kind of set up, after a, a few years, the Second World War, so that the 20th century becomes one of the bloodiest in human history. Ask the Ukrainians whether all wars have ended. Ask those poor Russian draftees who don't know what they're doing until they get there. And their, you know, bereaved parents back in Moscow or whatever. Evil is everywhere. And we are ostriches with our heads in the sand if we don't recognize it. This world is dark in many, many ways. And I find the Bible really credible because it says it is. From financial scams, which are directed at the most vulnerable people in our population, to nearly weekly mass shootings, often involving school children, and everything in between. And the, the real point is, evil isn't just something that's out there. You know where evil resides? In here. In the breast of every single one of you in this room. We all have, Daniel made this point excellently, I believe, in his class on King David, his biographical and psychological study of, of, of the text about King David, and that is that we all have the potential within us to treat other human beings who are precious, who are made in God's very image, as mere objects. Objects for or objects are obstacles in the way of our own selfish ends and purposes. Every one of us. We, we can do that in our own families, in our own homes. And speaking of the frustrations that can happen in families, I want to share with you a little a piece of a book um, by Fleming Rutledge, an author that I like a lot. And she is talking in this passage about a novel she read. You might have heard of William Styron. He, he wrote uh, a novel called uh, Confessions of Nat Turner. Ago and before that, Sophie's Choice, which was made in a movie back in the 80s with Meryl Streep, a famous uh, author from Virginia, died a few years ago. Um, and he, she's, she's referring here to his novel, Lie Down in Darkness. So I'm just going to read this short section, see if you can relate to this in, in any way. She says, one of the most excruciating passages of literature that I have ever read, this is a well-read person too, is about a family Christmas dinner. It is in William Styron's novel, called Lie Down in Darkness. Just, she starts talking about it. It's a family in Tidewater, Virginia, you know, eastern part of Virginia. The family whose, whose desperate lives make up the plot of the novel, she writes, gather around the table for Christmas dinner. The table is generously laid out with family silver, fine linens and crystal. The dining room is gleaming with candlelight and festooned with evergreens. The mother has outdone herself with the cooking and the food. Everyone is trying to be nice, 
trying not to say the wrong thing, trying to be happy. But bit by bit, the pain and torment in the family relationships are exposed, and the dinner ends in catastrophe. She writes, The power of the scene lies in the contrast between the polished perfection of the holiday table and the unendurable anguish in the hearts of the participants. I don't for a minute, she says, mean to suggest that everybody's Christmas dinners are like that, but I think you know what I mean. Things don't work out the way we want them to. At the heart of human life, there is an incapacity to make things turn out right. We're not capable of, of we think we know what we want, we have time, don't even know what we want. We're not even right about that. We want things that we really won't want once we get them. But we're not even good at getting them. And when we are, we're often chagrined that we got them. We don't really have the capacity to make things work out, to bring in the light. All of this is enough to make even the most optimistic person kind of throw up their hands in despair with the prophet Isaiah. I've lost my, there we go. Think of this. You ever feel like this? Isaiah 64, 1. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens, he says to God, and come down. Just rip open the heavens and come down so that the mountains could quake at your presence. Have you ever felt that much despair? God doesn't leave us. He doesn't leave His broken world in this darkness. The opening pages of the New Testament show us a man named John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus of Nazareth, who appears seemingly out of nowhere on the scene as a herald of heaven's answer to Isaiah 64.1, to our darkness, to our despair. The kingdom of heaven, coming out of the wilderness, he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, it turns out. <laughs> and I didn't confer with Daniel, and I don't remember, I, I gave the list of memory verses, sorry, I know they're too long, but I didn't know we were going to do this one this week, this month. It just all fits together. Into this dark world, comes the world's true light. The world's true king invades the darkness with the light of the kingdom of heaven. And Mark's gospel, particularly, presents the coming of Jesus Christ into the world as the answer to Isaiah 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would tear down the heavens, or tear open the heavens, rather, and come down. In Mark chapter 1, verse 10, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, actually at His baptism, we read this, Mark 1, verse 10. And when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw, notice this, hardly an accident, the heavens being torn open, same language, and the Spirit, Spirit of whom? God. God is doing what Isaiah begged God to do and what many of us in our hearts sometimes in our desperation are begging God to do. Would you just tear open the heavens, leave your realm and come to ours? And that's what this verse says Jesus is doing. At the end of Jesus' life, tail end of Mark's gospel, Mark 50, uh, chapter 15, as he's hanging on the cross, we read that he uttered a loud cry, verse 37, and breathed his last. And as he expires, the curtain of the temple, separating the most holy place where the presence of God was from the holy place where humans could go, this was torn in two, same language, 
And notice the direction. Torn in two from the top to the bottom, not the reverse. We're always trying to tear, tear it from the bottom up. You know, we're trying to build a Tower of Babel. Our hopes and our dreams and our efforts, you know, minding our P's and Q's. And here we read that, no, only God. It's a heaven downward ripping open so that God can come to our rescue. According to Mark's gospel, framed as it is with this idea of the heavens being torn open and God becoming uh, present with humanity, is to say that the whole advent, the whole arrival of Jesus Christ is God answering the despairing cry of Isaiah. And the reason John the Baptist said that heaven's kingdom is at hand, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and not just, you know, something else, the club of, ham, uh, of heaven or the, the, something like that, is that Jesus' arrival is the, the coming of a king, the world's true king. And what he does is to dethrone the other ruler of the world, as Satan is called. And he does so by dying on a cross. So in this completely unexpected, unforeseen, and counterintuitive way, dying on a cross erected by Roman soldiers on the hill of Calvary, the world's true king, Jesus Christ, deposes the ruler of this world, Satan, who was keeping it in darkness. And that's what John chapter 12 talks about. Jesus is the crucifixion imminently and he says this in John 12 27 now is my soul troubled and what shall I say father save me from this hour for this purpose the purpose of dying on the cross I have come to this hour but notice what he says the upshot of that will be verse 31 now in the cross is the judgment of this world now will the ruler of this world we need to be careful before we fall in love with this world because its ruler is Satan there's a sense in which the, the true ruler is Jesus. And he says, the ruler of this world will be cast out. And when I'm lifted up from the earth, referring to the crucifixion, I'll draw all men to myself. Flem, from, uh, Fleming Rutledge, the author I quoted a minute ago, calls this a regime change. I love that. While everybody on earth doesn't recognize it, a regime change happened in AD 30 when Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected. And the old ruler... The old administration was kicked out and the new ruler, the true king of the world, has begun to reign. And this regime change launches a renewal of the entire world. Not just of you and me, but the whole world. Jesus tells his disciples when he sends them out to heal the sick, to, when, he, when they do heal the sick, to announce that this is a sign that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God has come. In Luke 10, 9, he says, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. That's what it's about. Because in God's economy, in God's rule, we don't have death. We don't have death, uh, sickness. We don't have death either. In John eleven twenty five, 25, when Lazarus has died and Martha sort of rebuking Jesus for it, he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And with the power of Christ's death and resurrection, even we, in all of our sin, and all of our shame, can be made brand new. 2 Corinthians 5 says in an astounding statement, For our sake, God made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. Why would He do that? 
so that in Him, in Jesus, we might become the righteous of God. He just takes our record and, and switches it with His. He was righteous, we were sinful. On the cross, Jesus is sinful and we become righteous. He doesn't sin, but He is holding sin on Him. He became sin, Paul is so bold to say. So the coming of Jesus is the coming of the world's true king, and, and light is brought to invade and pierce the darkness. All right, so that raises a question. Why then all the continuing hardship? Suffering goes on, right? Isaiah 2 says that the messianic reign of Jesus would mean the end of war. That swords would be beaten into plowshares. That's not what my news tells me is going on in parts of the world. Bloodshed between nations and peoples continues. And knowing myself and knowing you, we still sin. The old person of sin has to be beaten back how often? <laughs> Every single day, multiple times a day. He will rear his head every you know chance he gets so what gives what how do we explain this tension and that brings up this third way of, of, of this, this third point which is maybe a weird way to put it but um, several have put it this way and I think it makes a lot of sense where we live and what Advent really means is is learning to live in the in-between not just survive but thrive and actually make it part of our mission, which we'll talk more about next week. So let's talk for a minute about living in this in-between. There's an interesting thing said by Paul in his first letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. And I'm using the, the New American Standard here because I think the way it renders it is, is more true to the, the Greek, and it's not the only one that does. King James renders it this way. Um, I think the New Revised Standard renders it this way. Your, your version may say something like this. Now these things happen to them as an example, and they were written for instruction, upon whom the end of the ages has come, or even the end of the age. Literally, it's ends, plural, of the ages. So you've got two different ages, and they each have their ends. And so what he's saying here is Christians, the world we occupy, where we live, is at the cusp or the ends, the overlap of two different ages. I brought some rulers. Let me, this is a crude illustration, but if you can imagine this ruler to be the old age. So creation, you know, and then the fall. So this is, there's sin, there's darkness going on. And Jesus with his crucifixion and resurrection enters that age. And, and the green ruler represents the new age. Ultimately, new creation, new heavens, new earth, ultimately. Sin's forgiven, death is no longer, uh, justice is, is, it pervades the universe, you know. Uh, everybody is treated as an as a, a image-bearing creation of God. Uh, the world is good. Everything is right. But when Jesus entered the old world of sin, it kept going. And if you can see this overlap between the two, that's where we live. After the cross and resurrection, but before the consummation of it all in the new heavens, new earth. And so we're living, we're people of two ages. We're at the ends of the ages. I think that's what Paul's saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. 
So if we expect that that's just gone and we're just everything's perfect, you know, um, we're we're hoping for something that's not the case. The old regime is doomed, but man, it's going to take as many people with it as it can. It doesn't want to be doomed, right? Evil persists in this world as we live in this liminal in-between time. Paul, you know, lived after the, I mean, wrote after the, uh, the cross and the resurrection. He's out propagating Christianity as the truth based on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And yet he can call the world that he lives in years after Calvary the present evil age. It's still an apt description of our world. It's, a, it's an evil age. That's the, it's the old age. And while the fate of the ruler of this world has already been sealed, he for a time is still going to go about, as Peter puts it, as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And yet, God promises that what was launched at Calvary, what was launched with the death and resurrection of Jesus, will be fully accomplished. It will have its desired end. It will come to fruition. Indeed, it's already underway. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, Peter says, but according to his promise, probably referring to Isaiah 60 through 65, all that stuff on the new heavens, new earth, that's quoted in Revelation and elsewhere. He says, but according to his promise, we are waiting, Christians are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That is going to happen. And when you're frustrated with yourself because you've done the same stupid thing for the umpteenth time and you know it's wrong, but you keep doing it, and you've got shame and you're burdened with that and guilt and you don't know if you, there's any hope for you, you need to remember when you're frustrated with your own weaknesses, your own failure, that you are, if you're in Christ, a new creation. And guess what God says about you? Paul says, speaking for the Lord, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We have the script, and yet we live in the in-between, at the cusp of two ages. So the old age of sin and darkness is now overlapped by a new age of the light of Jesus Christ. And the Christian life, where the church exists, is at the tension between this already and this not yet. One quote here from Fleming Rutledge. In a very real sense, she writes, the Christian community lives in Advent all the time. <laughs> kind of weird that it's a liturgical season. It's kind of just what it means to live for God in the world. Kind of cool that it happens this time of year when it's the darkest time of year, though. You know, it kind of providentially fits. It can be called the time between because the people of God live in the time between the first coming of Christ, incognito, as it were, in the stable in Bethlehem. And his second coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. Advent contains within itself the crucial balance of the now and the not yet that our faith requires. The disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterize life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. In that Advent tension, the church lives its life. Don't hope for something else. Well, hope for it. But don't expect it to be all perfect now. You know? These people keep sinning. Well, yeah, welcome to earth. Welcome to the tan, ugly ruler. You know? You're not going to get this instantly. 
But it is coming. And it's already here, in a sense. It's been launched. But we will struggle. We will still weep. We will still hurt. We're going to all have our hearts broken. If you haven't already, you will. And half the time, I'm the one doing the breaking of the heart. And you are too. And there's no good biblical reason to live in some greeting card denial of the hard parts of life that our scriptures repeatedly affirm. They validate that. But the struggles of the not yet must not be allowed to overwhelm us or to define us. Because Christ has come. And Christ is coming. Darkness is still going to linger, but the light of dawn has invaded it. The spirit of Advent, then, is about being people of the dawn. We live in such a way, we think in such a way, that we're kind of an exemplar of the dawn that's breaking in. We live in the present as if God's future were already here. There's a great song by U2. It's the one that came on your phone free about 10 years ago and made everybody mad, not except me and Joseph and other U2 fans. Daniel probably liked it. A lot of people are like, who is this band? They're my age, so it was a good question, fair question. Anyway, this song is called There is a Light. It's got real, I want to just give you a little excerpt from it. It really captures what I'm trying to talk about this morning of this tension. Part of the, the, the verse goes, When the wind screams and shout, shouts, and the sea is a dragon's tail, and the ship that stole your heart away sets sail. You ever felt like that? When all you've left, when you, all you have left is leaving you, and all you've got is grieving. That's the kind of situation he's talking about. And the chorus is, if there is a light we can't always see, and there is a world we can't always be, if there is a dark, now we shouldn't doubt. And there is a light. Don't let it go out. Here's what Paul says. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Next week, then we're going to talk about what that looks like and how it's related to our mission in the world. Thanks a lot for your attention.